in a world where everyone knows everything. <laughs> yeah, right. One dad stands below everyone and yells, I know nothing. Please welcome. Please welcome. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. Well, welcome. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. I'm so excited today. I have Dave Foster, the founder and CEO of the 1031 Investor. So Dave is a degreed accountant and serial real estate investor who has come up with this 1031 exchange and utilizing this one particular avenue to be able to shield himself from property gain taxes and from the sale of his properties and being able to make that a part of his real invest real estate investment strategy. And so I thought it was a very interesting uh, subject inside the realm, this huge realm of real estate investing. And so uh, he's obviously very passionate about it. So I thought what better than to have Dave come on and, and talk to us about investing in real estate with utilizing this 1031. So thanks for, thanks for being here, Dave. I appreciate you giving me a few minutes of your time. Oh, absolutely, Dana. By the way, can I add one more credit to my bio? I sure. truly am a dad who knows nothing. <laughs> and if for no other reason than that, I had to come on this podcast with you. Yeah, so we definitely have that in common. So that's awesome. So I wanted to start and how I start a lot of my conversations is I, I've just I just love hearing the stories of how people get started and what they're doing. So you obviously have a very unique and very uh, almost like a niche here in the real estate investing role world that you have utilized to great success and you've helped others to utilize it as well. And so how did you get started? How did you how did you stumble onto this? Did you stumble onto this or this was always the plan? How, how did it go? Stumble is a generous word, actually. Um, yeah, actually, you can read a lot about this. We actually put our story on the 1031investment.com, but it truly was just an accident of incredible proportions. My wife and I, uh, way back in the early 90s in Colorado, were the uh, prototype things, right? Double income, no kids, high-profile careers, enjoying life. And this amazing thing happened. We had our first child. And all of a sudden, the TV became meaningless. All we wanted to do was just sit and look at this little bundle of joy. And as we went through that process of becoming from self-centered, income-driven professionals to new parents, we began to realize that the uh, most precious commodity that anyone has is not money, wealth, status, or relationship. It's time. Because time is the one thing you don't get any more of. And so how you spend your time becomes critical for how you will view your life as successful or not when it's the end. And we could not think of anything better than to hang out and spend time with that little guy and his future brothers. We said, oh, my gosh, we've got to figure this out. How can we do that? So we started looking at ways to change our lives, to reduce the amount of time that we were spending on work and how we could increase the amount of time spent on family. 
And as we looked at that, we came to an early conclusion, although I'm a Kansas farm boy, my wife is from Minnesota, we lived in Colorado, there's not an ocean anywhere near there, but we decided that to accomplish this, we would move on to a sailboat and raise our kids on a sailboat. There was the decision, and it was about as well thought out as the last 10 seconds. So we decided that's the goal, right? How do we get there? And like so many people in today, I mean, throughout history, the two groups of people that have always ruled the world are the bankers and the landowners. And we thought, well, we don't have enough money to be a bank. How can we make money to give ourselves a time margin? And real estate, boom, just popped up as a very obvious and easy answer. So now we knew where we wanted to end up. We knew the vehicle we wanted to go. So one of my trademarks is that I always operate under the mantra of ready, fire, aim. So we got the goal. We know what we want to do. Well, let's start investing in real estate. So I just went and bought a property. And I fixed it up. And I sold it. And we made a ton of money. And we're off to the races. Until I talked to my accountant early the next year. And I think his first phrase was something. First phrase was something like, boy, are you going to owe a lot of taxes on that? And I wait a minute. That defeats the whole purpose, right? I realized then that every real estate investor has a son and partner. His name is Uncle Sam. And if you're not careful, he's going to make more money on your deals than you do. Well, that put a kibosh on my 10-year goal. So I started to think, okay, wait a minute. We've got to figure something out. Because if I keep feeding Uncle Sam, we're not going to make it to the sailboat before this first one graduates high school. So right at that moment in time, I, it's like my grandpappy said, I'd rather be lucky than good. But right at that moment in time, there was a huge court case that had been settled between the IRS and someone that they had sued. And that individual won, and it was over this process called the 1031 exchange. And all of a sudden, through the loss of the IRS, everyday individual investors were going to get to do this process. And I looked at it, what it does is it allows you to sell investment real estate and then purchase more investment real estate without having to pay tax on the profit in between. And it was originally designed for farmers. If you can remember this way back, I don't remember this, but think about the concept that back in the 20s, when this came into law, we had, they were trying to, the government really wanted to see agricultural industry grow. But if farmers sold a farm and then went to go buy a bigger farm, too often the tax that they would have had to have paid on the profits from the sale of their small farm would not allow them to have enough money to buy the bigger farm. So that's when Section 1031 was put into the code. And now over 80 years, everybody's going to get to do these. And some of my best friends, and by the way, you know you, you know who your best friends are, Dana, right? The ones that mock you mercilessly and then step alongside you to help you to the next step. 
those brands said, Dave, we're going to start a business doing these for other people. I said, that's it, count me in. And so 20 years later, we were able to build our portfolio without ever paying a penny in capital gains to the government on our real estate. We were able to buy a sailboat with tax-free dollars that came from our real estate portfolio. We were able to raise our four boys on a sailboat, all by us using and by providing the 1031 exchanges for other investors. It was a total accident, but what an amazing act of providence that let us get to where we needed more money to get to. So my understanding with the 1031, there is an element of it where it at some point it transitions from being an investment property into a primary residence, right? And then that's what allows you to then uh, be able to shelter yourself from some of that, some of those taxes. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, that's actually one of the more advanced ways of dealing with this. And it's part of our story. But in essence, there are four D's involved in 1031 investing. And they are, first of all, defer. Because anytime you sell a piece of property, if you do a 1031 exchange and buy new property, you will indefinitely, and I use that word deliberately, indefinitely defer paying tax on the profit. You get to use the tax for your own real estate investing. So if I sell a property and I make $100,000 on it, instead of paying $20,000 in tax and only having $80,000 left for a down payment to buy a $400,000 piece of property, I have all $100,000. So I can go buy $100,000. And that just, I mean, that's like it compounds after that, of course. But that's the first D. Now, the second D is defer, because at any time in the future, if you're wanting to change locations, for instance, we moved our portfolio from Denver to Connecticut to Florida in search of water that we could put a sailboat on and that would be warm. And we always wanted our portfolio near us, but you could move your portfolio anywhere in the country. If you want to change types, we use 1031 exchanges to move from yeah, single-family residential to multifamily to commercial, finally to development land, agricultural land. It's all the same. But as long as you continue to 1031, you continue to indefinitely defer paying the tax on all the profits. You know what the third D is? Hmm. That's defer. Because... As long as you hold the property, changing the use of it from investment to your primary residence does not create a taxable event, only the sale. And this is where it really pours gasoline on the whole fire. Because what we would do, the rules are very different between your primary residence and investment property. If you buy a property, live in it for two years, and then sell it, as a married couple, you get to take the first $500,000 of profit tax-free. And you can do that once every two years. So I mean, just think about that by itself. 
that gives you eight to 10 opportunities in your lifetime to just sell the house you live in and take the money tax free. Now, in our case, we absolutely did that. Where did that money go? That money went into the kitty to buy the sailboat. Because you can't tip 31 into a sailboat. It's got to be investment real estate. But every chance we got to pull money out tax-free, we put it in the buy-the-boat fund. Now, along with that, though, is what you talked about, this idea of conversion. Because periodically, before we left Denver, we converted one of our investment properties into our primary residence. Now, this was prior to 2008. And at that point in time, when we converted it, all we had to do was live in it for two years. And again, the first 500000 in gain was tax-free. Where did we move? Well, we had already started to 1031 exchange into the Stanford, Connecticut area. So we simply, our first move was to convert one of our investment properties into a primary residence in Connecticut. Two years later, that money's tax-free. Meanwhile, we're starting to position our portfolio by the investment properties in Florida. You know why? Because after a year, we realized we had asked God if he would let us move to sailboat water and live on a sailboat, but we forgot to ask for warm water. <laughs> so get out of Dodge to Florida time. So our last move out of Connecticut was to sell take that money tax-free, where did we move in Florida? Into one of our former investment properties because converting does not create a taxable event. But after a period of time, it turns now, since 2008, they put a picture of me up in their lunchroom with the IRS. So now you don't get the full benefit, but you still get a proration. So it's an awesome way to pull gain out. So defer, defer, defer. And I would ask you to guess what the fourth D is, but you'll never guess it because that is die. Because if you die holding real estate, your property gets what is called a step up in basis. So all of that deferred tax over your years and decades of 1031 investing goes to your children if they're still in your will and they get it as if they paid market value. So all of the profit, all of the deferred tax truly does disappear. And that's how ultimately it could be totally tax-free. Hmm. I just squeezed about 25 years of investing into three minutes of description. I hope that resonated. That was great. No, um, so... A couple things that, um, you know, so one is just kind of real estate normal in today's market, right? We, we see a, a quite a bit of uh, rising of home values, at least uh, maybe the last couple of months, they've kind of tapered off a little bit. In this type of environment, are there still, what, where do you tend to look for if you're looking for something to add to your 1031? You know, I don't know who coined this phrase, but it was an awesome phrase, but I can't take credit for it. They always said to look for the holes in the market. It's like when you're looking at a donut, you see a beautiful donut. 
But in real estate, you can't look at the donut. You've got to focus on that hole in the middle. So let's talk about this market since 2010-ish. If you were living in California and you actually bought or owned property in San Francisco and the Bay Area, right about that time, you got some amazing bargains. And your appreciation has gone through the roof. But rents, while they have increased, have not kept up. So you continue to invest in that area. And you're going to, now that appreciation has started to slow down and take off, now you've got a situation where you're not getting appreciation. It's a very high price point, And you're not getting good rental income as a return on your investment. So you may start looking for different areas. Like in the heartland, the Rust Belt, uh, the South where demographics show people moving to, where you can buy properties that are lower priced, but provide a higher dollar per square foot in rental. That kind of a thing is where you can look. Uh, different sectors, because different sectors of the market mature at different rates. Early on, the low-hanging fruit of foreclosed single-family properties are going to appreciate like crazy. When their prices get topped out, everybody like uh, herds of lemmings jumps into multifamily. And for multifamily, because they want to try to make their numbers work, they go into short-term rental. They move into commercial, wherever you can find. A couple of pieces that we like to use we will always look for areas where there's net growth in migration. So people are moving because those are going to have continued migration pressure growth. Secondly, we're going to look where the government, federal or state, are making large investments. So it could be like a small town in central, uh, in north central Kansas, where the government has placed the National Agricultural Biological Defense Entity, a $3 billion investment into a town of $200,000. Well, that's going to attract some of the nation's best and brightest. You know, physicists and agrobiologists, et cetera, et cetera. That's a market that's got a lot of growth. Where are Citibank? Where is Amazon? Look at what's happening to Austin. Austin's always had great barbecue and blues. But... When Tesla and when UT started getting government contracts, when those started happening, Austin exploded. Now, where are you going to go? You're going to try to go to Austin now? Or are you going to look for those holes in the donut that might be out there for you? So that's kind of the philosophy that we entertain. No, it's a good analogy. Um, when you were talking about before, you know, and you're taking these properties and you're and you're fixing them up. Are you general? And this answer may have changed when you know when you were younger to now uh, a little little older. For me, my you know I dread the fact of of spending a ton of time in sweat equity while I can swing a hammer. Um, you know, it's not the best use of my time when I have so many other priorities. So, what has your experience been using sweat equity versus? Um, hiring someone. Oh man, my heart is with demolition. I got to tell you, mm. it's just I've solved all the world's problems while tearing down walls and houses. It's just something I love. But you're right. 
as the shoulder gets a little tweak here, it's all part of the process of using your skills and your assets to their best use. Early on, I was just talking to one of my sons about this a couple of days ago. And I said, wasn't it funny that when you were 15, you always thought that he was mountain biking and he had a major wrecking and he was all bloody up. I said, you know, when you were 15, you always thought that you would heal and your bike wouldn't. So you protected your bike, didn't you? He said, yeah, Dad, that's not true anymore, is it? No, he's learned that his life is actually a bigger asset. So he started protecting, just like you and I. What's the, what are the assets that we have, that we need to use the most to get us there? And so if you use that, you know, yeah, yeah, I'd love to demo, but I don't have the time to do it. Uh, but we have more opportunity to do research. So we need to be doing that. I think that's really all kind of part of that huge discussion, just in general, where as real estate investors, there will always be a natural move from active investing to passive investing. It just makes sense. And then you pass the torch, like what we're doing now, we're buying investment properties with our sons. So they're starting their active portion. We're now providing that, that sage dad wisdom, mm -hmm. uh, which hopefully they'll start to believe in many years. But so that we're moving more passive, that's just, that's how life works. And if you can embrace that, I actually really do have fun watching myself a little bit. Matter of fact, one of the greatest joyful moments, oh my gosh, I crowed about this for weeks, Dana. My son came to me, he said, Dad, you go in this house. Throw down, look at it. He said, should the ceiling be doing that? I said, no, probably not. You shouldn't have knocked out the load-bearing wall. That was like worth a lifetime of the, had you don't know anything, diatribe. It was awesome. Yeah, active to passive is just natural. Got it. So the 1031, in order to set those up, do you need to have, uh, does it have to be done through a business, through an LLC or something like that? Or can it be set up under a personal individual? That's one of the beautiful things that came out of that, that tax law, that tax court case is that any tax-paying entity can do 1031 exchanges. So if you're just simply Joe Normal and uh, you own a piece of property, you can sell it and do a 1031 exchange. You could be an LLC, a corporation, a trust, doesn't matter. If you own real estate and you pay taxes, have a tax return, you can do 1031 exchanges. And I mean, are there, I mean, obviously there's other benefits, right? If you had a business that you were utilizing, you know, you could, but uh, it's interesting to know that any individual can set those up as well. So is it just the yeah. vehicle that has to be set up by a financial professional? Is that? Yeah, it's a step-by-step it's -step process that has to be managed by an unrelated third party called the qualified intermediary. Got it. So that's what we do. Our only role is the... 1031 exchange. So you use all the people you normally would in the same roles you normally would. Same realtors, same accountants, same attorney, title company, et cetera, et cetera. The difference is you add the third party called the QI. And that's what we do. And uh, yeah, it's 
It's really as simple as that. One of the greatest impacts beyond just not having to pay tax is when you think about, as you said, the tax benefits of owning real estate, the biggest one is depreciation, where the government lets you pretend that your real estate loses value every year. And you get to write that off in your taxes. So it lowers your tax bill. Where here's the awful way in which the government plays cringe. When you sell that property, they make you pay back all of the tax benefit that you took while you owned it. But uh, doesn't that just bite? So the 1031 exchange also defers all depreciation recapture. So you not only get the write-offs while you own it, when you sell it, you don't have to pay them back. And if you buy more than you sold, then the additional amount you buy is additional depreciable basis that you get to start depreciating. So a lot of these projects, there's these things uh, that people like to call bonus depreciation or accelerated depreciation, where they can invest in real estate and take a huge write-off in year one. Well, if they try to sell that in year three, that's going to come back and bite them big time. So what they'll do is they'll do a 1031 exchange. And all of that depreciation rolls forward into the new property, and it's as if they never died. But meanwhile, in that current year, they got a huge write-off. Wow. Interesting. So what is that? Is that pretty much now the primary thing that you're doing is just setting up and assisting others or are you still actively investing in real estate on your own? You know, as, as the market has grown, just like everything, when the market starts to mature, we start getting more selective. And it seems like the older you get, it's a function of energy. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also a function of being able to look back and say, you know what? When I bought that property in 2006, that was a bad buy. I should have stopped in 2004. So rather than wait for the market to turn on us, we've simply become more selective. I'm always willing to buy because there's always deals ready. We've got some agricultural land that we were moving into. We've got a housing development we're doing, a couple rentals, an Airbnb. It's things here and there, but we're just being a little more selective about it because we're not so much trying to grow the kingdom as we are set up our friends and relatives and children to succeed as well. So, gotcha. But definitely, I, I love doing both. Uh, I can't help but invest myself. And the greatest joy has been 23 years of watching other people get to their goals. I hope it amuses. Hmm. And getting back to the actual transaction. So once you sell it, once you buy the property with that third party set up to 1031, then when you go to sell, it's already set up and it's just a matter of just transferring it to the new property. That's a great question. And you know what? It's really counterintuitive, but it's actually the exact opposite. The 1031 starts with the sale of your old property. Because up until then, you just buy a piece of property, you set it up, you're using it. When you're ready to sell it, that's when you initiate the 1031 exchange. 
and you sell the old property with the qualified mediary in place, you have 45 days to identify your potential replacements. You have a total of 180 days to close your purchase. And then the 1031 ends with the purchase of the new property. And when it's done that way, all of the profit that you would have had to pay tax on for the sale moves into the purchase. And then when you subsequently go to sell that second property, it's just the same thing again. You're you're classifying it as the 1031 going through That's the exactly same process right. with the same time frames. Exactly right. Okay. Yeah, it's the four Ds or the way another colleague of mine would say, you just swap till you drop and you'll never pay the tax. So do you find that your strategy is to identify that next property before you start going through the process of trying to sell the new one? Because obviously with re with regular properties, right, there's always contingencies and all these other things. So uh, how do you, because 180 days, I mean, you think that, well, that's a ton of time, but we all know how that, that gets eaten up really quick in real estate transactions. Right. Well, it gets even worse because that 45 is really where it gets you. Mm -hmm. You only have 45 days to create a list. And after day 45 passes, you can't alter that list anymore. So a so, list of potential replacement properties. Correct. How long so is the list? what I tell people is, well, usually it's only three. Oof. All right. Yeah. Unless you're buying a much smaller size of property. And then you can name as many as you want, but their total value cannot be more than 200% of what you sold unless you buy the property. So if you sell a million-dollar property, Mm -hmm. And you're going to try to buy $2 million property, you really can only have three on your list. But if you're selling a million dollar property and you want to go buy $200,000 properties, well, you can name nine or 10 of them because 200% of a million is 2 million. Uh, and with that, we start to see how complicated it can get, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why the QI is there for you. But there's a poison bill with 1031 investing. And that poison bill is that the best time to sell your property and start a 1031 exchange is the absolute worst time to find your new property and up market. And the converse is true as well. If you're in a down market, that's the worst time to try and sell your own property, but it's the best time to find deals. So how do people work through that poison bill? Up until the last few months of uh, 21 and early 22, we were seeing that nobody was accepting contingencies, were they? Right. No, I'm getting seven cash offers, no contingency, no inspection, 10-day close on day one. I'm not going to sell this to you, contingent on you selling your own property. So my advice to people was, well, let's turn that on its head then. Don't forget, although you're trying to buy, you're also a seller. So if you're getting seven offers on day one to buy your property for cash with no inspection, et cetera, et cetera, what do you think those people would say if you said, okay, I'll choose you, but I want a close that's contingent on me finding my new property? Use the power that you have to your advantage. Well, they would love that. Because they lock in their price 
but they don't actually have to buy the property. They can put additional earnest money down. There's all sorts of ways to make that work. Uh, but that's, that's the kind of thing. Now, when you get into a market that's slower, maybe you want to sell your property first, but you've already identified your properties so that you can close on them during the 45-day period. Just all sorts of different ways to use contingencies in the market and who you are to take advantage. But yeah, that's one of the tricks. That's one of the arts of being a 1031 investor. So I'm assuming if you had, if you're a real estate investor and you have five or six properties, the same rules apply. If you are going to sell one of them, you can utilize the 1031 or are there yeah. limits to how many you can, you can have? Any but you may have, you may have six properties and only want to sell one, right? Because of, of some sure. reason. Any property that qualifies, and by that we mean it's real estate and you purchased it with the intent of holding it for productive use. Fix and flippers or builders cannot do 1031 exchanges. It's for people that buy property with the intent of holding it. So as long as it meets those criteria, you can do one of your six, or here's a great hack. You can do what's called a consolidation exchange. Thinking about that move from active to passive, sell six $200,000 homes cluster them so they all close about the same time. Each one is its own 1031 exchange, but go and buy one $1.2 million apartment. Cut your management by a fraction, generate better income for doors, have less, less properties, less toilets to fix, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's called a consolidation exchange. And that's beautiful for moving towards the tail end of the festival. The exact opposite is true as well. If you've got a property that has appreciated your seller for like $400,000, why not sell it and instead of buying one $400,000 replacement, go buy two $200,000 properties? Because you want, that gives you two projects to work on, two value adds. The opportunity to generate two rentals, get two loans under your belt, all kinds of good things that can happen. And then when those each reach 400000 what are you going to do? Sell them and buy two more. And sell them and buy two more. And then one day, you're going to wake up tired, Dana. Mm -hmm. You know why? Because you got 18 gazillion units. So what are you going to do? Package them together and start to consolidate. And that's what I like to call the ebb and the flow of 1031 investing. It'll accommodate the market. It'll accommodate your desired returns. And it accommodates your desired lifestyle. You just got to fit it in. Put the puzzle together. Yeah, great. And so you mentioned the intent to use for productive use. So are there time frames with that definition? Great question. Technically, no, there's not. Uh, there's not a statutory time limit at all. Now, most people and professionals will feel comfortable at anything more than a year. But there is always one, there's one, at least one relatively recent famous case where a person held a tract of land for over 10 years. And when he sold, he tried to do a 1031 exchange, 
He was audited for something else. They looked at the exchange and they disallowed it. The reason was, they said, even though you held it for 10 years, it was never your intent to hold it. Your intent was to subdivide it and sell the lots. You know how they do that? This went all through the downturn of 08, 09, 10. They do that because he had never removed the MLS listing. Mm. <laughs> so according to the IRS, he was always trying to sell it. Yeah. The so fact that he didn't sell it was immaterial to them. That's exactly right. It's what his intent was. So, but then by the same token, one of my favorite clients sold the property after owning it for only about 60 days. And he called me up and introduced himself, said, I want to do a temporary exchange. We started talking about the property. And I said, you know, dude, I don't think you can do that. You haven't owned it. You're, did you buy it just to resell it? He said, no. He said, I even had to honor the long-term lease that had more than a year left for the tenant that was in there because it was a friend of the sellers. I said, yeah, but you're selling it now. So what happened? He goes, it was the bear. What? It was in Tennessee. A bear had taken up residence at the trash can of the house. And so the tenant was scared. She vacatedly said, no way. I'm not dealing with a bear. And honest to gosh, he sent a ring photograph of the bear to us. And he used an account and said, hey, the IRS is not going to argue with a bear. <laughs> so even though he owned the property for a short amount of time, he could demonstrate that his intent was to hold it. Now, when we're talking about like fix and flip people, there's very easy ways to turn that on your head, on its head. Instead of buying a property, fixing it and selling it, why don't you buy the property, fix it, then put a renter in it right. and do a refinance? Because that refinance can come almost immediately. And that's what's going to let you Go buy your next project. Well, that first one percolates. Mm. And then once you've owned it for a year, then you can sell it if you want and go buy another property. Now you've got two that you're working on and you keep doing the same thing. So instead of buy, fix, sell, you buy, fix, rent it, refinance it, and then later, 1031. So it slows you down a little bit at first, but man, the benefits are awesome. Yeah, it's definitely can have some of those compounding qualities that everybody talks about with investments, right? Just continuing to uh, build that that uh, investment using this tool. All right. So what, if anything, would you like to leave our list, my listeners with about this subject? So, I mean, th there's there's going to this is going to hit with a certain amount of people, right, that are really interested in real estate. Uh, people like you and me, I mean, you're obviously in it a lot more than, than I am. Uh, but utilizing this tool is fascinating to me because I mean, I'm sure it'd be bumps along the road, but that's how you help your clients, right. By helping smooth through and helping walk them through how this process would work. Right. So what would you like my listeners to know about this 1031? Well, yeah, I mean, like anything, the 1031 is one of the tools. Now I talk about it a ton because it's been my primary tool. Because uh, I'm a big believer that, you know, the difference between a drywall and an electrical issue 
is not the tool. You just need a bigger hammer. But that being said, um, the tool's not always right. But you always want to size the tool to see if it's right. So whether it's no money down, you know, we're looking at a property now, we're turning it to, we're affectionately calling it the hippie camp because it's going to turn into a, I swear I never go for trendy things, but doggone it, this one's calling my name. We want to turn it in. It's already doing short-term rentals for traveling nurses. And we're going to turn it into a full-on tiny house, short-term rental. I hate how trendy that sounds, but this one's begging it. But here's the deal. As I started to go through the numbers, it doesn't work with a normal SPD loan, which I like to use. Because the terms, the numbers, the criteria, all the abilities, they don't work. It doesn't work with a couple of the partners that I usually use because of how we like to operate and that kind of thing. So I'm evaluating the property, but at the same time, I'm evaluating the tools. But I do have uh, a bunch of land that I've held for development that's in Southeast Kansas that certainly would be a beautiful 1031 to go buy this. There's the tool. Mm. That works. So it's not always going to be right. But like everything in life, you got to size everything to actually see what's going to work. And that's, that's I think, the key. Bottom line, just like my uncle used to say, nobody ever went broke paying tax on profit. But if you don't have to pay the tax, that's just that much sweeter. Yeah, that's absolutely true. This has been awesome, Dave. I, I, I so thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your expertise. He is the 1031 Investor. That's his website, the 1031 Investor. So T-H-E and then the numbers 1031 and then investor.com. And on that website, there's uh, nice ways to, uh, there's a story that you told uh, this evening on how you got started in this and also some options for them to contact you and if they want to learn more. And certainly you're giving a lot of support to a lot of people and utilizing this very effective tool for real estate. So I appreciate you coming on so much. This has been great. And I'm sure we'll, we'll connect again and stay connected going forward. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for joining us on our journey to learn about various topics. If you'd like to get in touch with the dad who knows nothing, connect with him at the dad who knows nothing on TikTok and Instagram or dad knows zero on Twitter. If you have a moment and you like this episode, drop us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have a great day and enjoy your journey through this game called life. <laughs>